You are listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast from Freedom Fellowship Church in Tontytown, Arkansas. Our mission is to love God, love others, and serve both. And now let's listen in to this week's sermon. If you would, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 25. And while you're doing that, I want to ask a question. Are we sticking to our mission as Christians? You may be thinking, well, what is my mission? Good question. That will get answered today. But if you know your mission as a Christian, are we sticking to it? Am I sticking to it? What we're going to look at today is we are going to see how the Apostle Paul, as we continue in our series in Acts, which is God's blueprint for his church, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul, through thick and thin, stuck to his mission. It's a very, very simple mission, but as we have seen through our study of Acts, that there is a lot of junk, let's call it junk, that gets in the way that is hindering Paul from doing, uh, from living out his mission. Now, before we get into this, we're covering a wide swath of text today. We're covering all of chapter 25 and most of chapter 26. Um, which I encourage you, again, I like to give homework, read those two chapters. Because what we're doing today is, I call it water skiing. We're just on top of the water. We're barely kind of skimming the surface as far as the, the text itself. There's a lot that we can stop and kind of talk about. But really, what we are focused on is what is Paul's mission? What was he doing? How did the Lord use him in these situations to fulfill that mission. And again, Paul had a divine calling, a divine uh, manifest of here's what I want you to go do, which we're going to talk about today. Okay, who likes history class? A couple people, okay. The rest of you, well, hang on. So where we're at, I I want to... I think the location of where we're talking about, where chapters really part of 24, 25, and a lot of 26 takes place is important to the story. There's a town called Caesarea, but wait a minute, there's another town in Israel called Caesarea. There's two Caesareas. One of them, if you look in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 16, is Caesarea Philippi. This one is a different Caesarea. This is a place called Caesarea Maritima. And so, Whitney, can we put up Caesarea then? So this is what it looked like back then. At at the time of Paul, this is on the Mediterranean Sea. This is right there. It is absolutely beautiful. But you can see a couple of different things that I want to point out. Over here, we have, that's known as the Hippodrome right there. It's... um, if you guys have ever seen Ben-Hur, where they do the chariot races, and, or if you're a little bit more modern, the movie Gladiator, where they had the, the arena and all of that kind of stuff, this is something very, very similar, but this is in Israel. But the other thing I want to draw your attention to is in the lower right, that large amphitheater, that auditorium, that is what it looked like then. Let's go to the next slide. This is what it looks like today. There is still part of that, uh, what they call the Hippodrome, right there. This was built by Herod the Great. 
Herod the Great built this around the time of the birth of Christ. So around uh, 4 to 5 AD is when he started constructing this. This was a seaside um, palace. This was, I mean, it was just, it was amazing the type of stuff that was there. This is where Paul was imprisoned. So let's go to the next one, which should be, this is what Paul's jail cell would have looked like. Right there, that little tiny place right there, that is still standing to this day. That is where Paul would have been imprisoned. So the reason I'm showing you this is not, hey, it's cool you know, to see that kind of thing. What we are reading about in Acts is not a story. The Bible is real. It is about real people. It is about real places. Places like that still are standing to this day. That is likely where Paul was imprisoned while this chapter is, is happening. Before we go to that last picture, um, I want to bring to mind from Acts chapter 19, verses, uh, verse 21. This is from a couple weeks ago when Nate and I, um, we both kind of co-preached that day. This is one of the things that we covered. This is way back in Acts 19. We're in Acts 25 today. But it says, afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must go on to Rome. I must go to Rome. Why? Is it to get a selfie in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa? No. Or the Colosseum? No. He went to go preach the gospel. And by the way, I'm going to spoil the very end of Acts. At the end of chapter 28, it says, Paul preached the gospel in Rome, basically unimpeded. Paul gets there, but back in Acts 19, this is what Paul said. He, he made up his mind, I must go on to Rome. Now, if you missed Coach's message last week, it was on, we kind of got a little bit out of order, but it was on Acts 23, and what he talked about, the main takeaway was the providence of God, that we may not see the things working behind the scenes, but God is working things together. So, as we continue to go through this, we are going to see that play out. He will get to Rome eventually, but there's a lot more that has to happen. So another thing to point out is Paul was unique. He was a Jewish citizen, but he was also raised a very, very strict Pharisee. That's on this hand. The other hand, he was also a Roman citizen. You don't have a whole lot of people with dual citizenship. So when he's doing this, it's, it's almost like he's kind of ping-ponged back and forth between the Jewish court and the Roman court. Because remember, Israel was a self-sustaining country, a community of, of people with their own laws and, and regulations and things like that. But then you have Rome, this Roman empire occupying Israel saying, we're, we're going to allow you to continue to do this, but you still have to abide by Roman rules as well. So here's Paul kind of caught in the middle of the two of those. 
So I want to go ahead and start in Acts chapter 25, starting in verse number 8. And I'm, I'm going to be kind of jumping around a little bit. But basically what is happening, Paul is in prison. You have some of the Jews who absolutely hate Paul's guts to death, literally. They try to talk to Festus, who is the new governor, saying, hey, can you uh, take Paul? We want to try him in Jerusalem. But really what they wanted to do is they wanted to ambush Paul and kill him on the road to Jerusalem. And the governor kind of sniffed that out. He's like, mm, no, he's going to stay here. So the Jews are, are charging, trying to charge Paul with all kinds of things. But watch this in verse number eight. It says, Paul denied the charges. I am not guilty of any of the crime against Jewish laws or the temple or the Roman government. Again, he's pointing out saying, they're accusing me of all of these things, but I'm not guilty of them. Then Festus, who was the new governor who succeeded Felix, wanting to please the Jews, asked him, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? But Paul replied, no, this is an official Roman court, so I ought to be tried here. You know very well that I am not guilty of harming the Jews. If I have done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I am innocent, no one has the right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. Festus conferred with his advisors and then replied, Very well, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Where does Caesar live? Rome. Paul's plan, it says he purposed in his spirit to go and preach the gospel in Rome, is starting, we're starting to see it kind of unveil. Is Paul forcing things to happen? No. He is simply saying, I appeal to Caesar, I'm going up the food chain up to Caesar. Now, who is Caesar? It tells us in I believe it's chapter 26, says that Augustus is Caesar, but actually Nero is the Caesar. And Caesar is not a last name or a first name. Caesar is a title. So you have different Caesars, one who makes a pretty delicious salad, by the way. Um, but you have different Caesars. The one who is in charge right now is Nero. So what Paul does is he appeals to go up there. Now, Back to Caesarea Maritima. That's where we get the word maritime is from that. You have King Herod, Herod the Great, the big paranoid guy who tried to kill Christ when he was a child. That is the, the grandfather in this story. He had a son named Agrippa I. Agrippa... Does anybody know what happened to him? Remember him being warm food? Acts chapter 12, that's more homework right there. Uh, he was eaten by worms and died. But Agrippa had a son named Agrippa II. That is who Paul is going to be appealing to here in just a little bit. So Agrippa II is going to be who Paul talks to. Agrippa II had a sister named Bernice. The reason I'm talking about this is they're going to play a, a pretty large part here in just a second. But 
Agrippa II and his sister Bernice, there was a lot of rumors that there was incest going on. They denied it, of course. But the historian Josephus, how he got proof, I don't know. But he records that that proof did happen, that there was incest happening. So why are we talking about this? You have Agrippa II, his sister Bernice. They are going to come. They are going to, metaphorically, kiss the ring of the new governor. Remember, we had Felix. Now we have, his name is Festus. He took over for Felix. So they are coming to kind of pay their respects and to uh, kind of schmooze, some old-timey schmoozing happening here. So they come to kiss to. Caesarea, Caesarea, to kiss up to the new governor. Festus, the governor, also wants their opinion on Paul. They're like, okay, I inherited this guy from the previous administration. What should I do with him? So they're coming to kiss up. They're coming to offer insight, that sort of thing. So let me read Acts 25, verse 23. So, so the next day, Agrippa, talking about Agrippa II and Bernice, arrived at the auditorium with great pomp, accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city. Festus ordered that Paul be brought in. Let's stop right there. Why is this important? Whitney, can you go to the auditorium? That auditorium looked just like this. This is the actual auditorium. Remember in the first picture of the, the city? This was what was over there. This, they've refurbished it a little bit, but for the most part, it's still very much intact. They still have concerts. If you have ever seen, I think it was Hillsong did a video con uh, concert over there. They did one of the songs from this amphitheater. This right here, you can go visit today. It exists where Paul was brought in. When you have Agrippa II and Bernice coming in with all of the pomp and circumstance and pageantry and all of that kind of stuff, this is where it was happening. So Paul was brought in in verse 24, Acts 25, 24. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are here, this man whose death is demanded by all the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem, uh, but in my opinion, he has done nothing deserving of death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, talking about Caesar, I have decided to send him to Rome. So you may be thinking, oh my gosh, this is the most boring stuff ever. Okay. This is all kind of set up to where we're going. Now, what happens in chapter 26 is when Paul begins to defend himself, his defense before the king. These people want to kill him. His life is on the line. So what does he do? He presents his case saying, here's why I'm not deserving of death, or I'm not deserving of death, and here's why. But what he does is he uses, Paul was a very, very smart man. He knew who his audience was. He used, if you have ever studied classical rhetoric, he uses a classical rhetorical argument with a prologue, a narration, a confirmation, a refutation, and a concluding appeal. Classical rhetoric, 
to present his case. You may be thinking, who cares? We're going to see it next week. Somebody almost got convinced up here, but not here. Paul knew what he was doing. So throughout this defense, Paul uses rhetoric or persuasion to persuade not just the people, because you had, I don't have it anymore, he had an audience up there in that amphitheater. People came to watch this. But what Paul did, he was talking directly to the king, the one who had the power to recommend that he be loosed from the chains completely. But what Paul does when he does this, he places an emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. He points it out twice in his defense. The resurrection of Christ is what is important. Am I putting you guys to sleep? Okay. All right, because it's about to get really, really good. You may be thinking, oh, I slept through history class in high school. Now I have to sleep through history class in church. But I want you to see this. We're not going to cover all of Paul's defense. I encourage you, highly encourage you to go back and reread Acts 25 and 26, because this is so good, because we're going to be talking about mission. So look at Acts chapter 26, starting in verse number 12. This is Paul for the second time in Acts. Now, as us, the reader, this is the third time that we are reading about Paul's conversion or Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. This is the second time from the mouth of Paul. We see it in Acts 22, and now we see it here in 26. But watch this. This is Paul talking to the king, showing respect to the king, saying, with your permission, here's what I'm going to present. He says, one day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. Now, that mission that Paul was on was not a good one for the church. He was persecuting the church. He was killing people. He hated them so much. He hated everything they stood for. He had that zeal, that vinegar, I'll leave out the other word, that vinegar inside of him, that oomph, that oh, that driving force. God used that for his glory. So his mission that he was on to Damascus, I am going to seek and destroy these people in Damascus, these Christians. But verse 13, but about noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down around me shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Now, some of your translations may say, why, why is it so hard for you to kick against the goads? Or if you're a King James fan, kick against the pricks. What is that? It's a rod used to keep animals in line. It's like, why are you kicking against that? It's only going to hurt you. This is my will. But look in verse 15. Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, wait a minute. Something I want to point out here is Paul was going after the church, the individual me members of the church. 
They were having church, presumably small group, up in Damascus. There in Jerusalem, they were meeting. They were praying together. They were being hunted and persecuted and murdered, put in prison, all of these things. Yet here is Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? So going back to what happened before the sermon this morning, we said that we are the church. That is absolutely true. The church is not this building. If this building got turned to rubble tomorrow, would the church still exist? Absolutely. We'd be huddled around that oak tree out there. Some of us getting sunburned. That is the point that I'm trying to make, that Jesus said, why are you persecuting me when Paul was persecuting the church? But watch how Jesus divinely, divinely gives Paul his marching orders. He says, now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me, tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Then he goes on in verse 19. And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they must repent of their sins and turn to God, and prove that they have changed by the good things they do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time so that I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, and in this way announce God's light to the Jews and Gentiles alike. That's a lot of scripture, but I want to go back and point out just a couple of things. Paul has stuck to his divine mission from Christ himself. He said, you're going to be my servant. You're going to be my witness. I will rescue you from both your own people, talking about the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. So Paul's mission was to go out and to share the gospel with people. That was his mission. Raise your hand if you have a similar mission. <clears throat> Raise your hand if you have a similar mission. Yes. Our job, what is our job? What is our mission? To go out, share Christ with people, and to make what? Disciples. That's our job. We see Paul's job. So what does this look like? Can we go ahead and put up verse 18 again, Whitney? Look at verse 18. What does the mission look like? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is talking about the Jews and the Gentile. For us, what does this look like? When we set foot outside of these doors, whether it's our co-workers, 
people we go to school with, our neighbors, people we bump into at Chick-fil-A. It doesn't matter. We need to understand that is our mission field. When it supernaturally happens, people's eyes are open to the truth. Their eyes currently are closed. Is it because they're choosing to, to live like? No. Their eyes are closed, whereas those who have placed saving faith in Christ, their eyes, our eyes, are open. To turn people from darkness to light, that is supernatural. That's what the Lord does. He opens their eyes. He turns people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Again, are these people willingly living for Satan, willingly living in the dark, willingly closing their eyes? No, they are doing it in ignorance. Our job is to help open their eyes. We can't physically open them. We cannot force anyone to do anything, but we can talk about the power of God so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. Also in verse 18, and an inheritance for those who have faith in Christ. So that's the mission. That's what it looks like. The question is how? How does this look? Can we pull up verse 20? Verse 20 says, I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove that they have changed by the good things that they do. They should, number one, repent. Number two, turn to God. Number three, do works benefiting repentance. Now, you may be thinking, okay, this is nothing new to me. I've been in church my whole life. You're not telling me anything new. Good. I'm not trying to. What I'm simply doing is reminding you that next person that you bump into whose eyes are closed, who's living under the power of Satan, again, not willingly, but who is living in spiritual darkness, when we talk to them, when we share Christ with them, when we disciple them, this is what we should be telling them. That here is what is going to happen. You need to repent. It's not because I'm better and you're worse. No, that is what this says, that we should repent, that we should turn to God, then do works benefiting repentance. Or prove that they have changed by doing the good things that they do. So what is that message? What should we be telling people? This is all well and good. I don't know what to tell them. Look at verse 23. That the Messiah, that Christ is the Messiah. That he had to suffer. That he is... Number one, risen from the dead, but he is the first to rise from the dead. That he was there to proclaim light to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. So in other words, the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for those who are wealthy, those who are a little bit you know, better off than others. You don't have to have a certain, you know, 
geographical, cultural, socioeconomic, none of that matters. Someone can be of a different religion and you share Christ with them, they can be saved like that. God has that power to do that. We don't. I mean, we can talk people into stuff, but we're not in the business of doing that. Our job is to simply point people to Christ who can do this. Through the power of his spirit, he can save the most unlikely people. Gail, I'm going to share this, this story. We were talking earlier this week, Gail and I were, about what does salvation for those people we don't think deserve it. There was a lady by the name of Carla Faye Tucker. She was the first woman, I believe, executed in the state of Texas. She was an axe murderer, and I'll kind of leave it at that. It was pretty gruesome. She was a, whew, she was a piece of work. But what happened is when she was on death row, she heard the gospel. She responded to it. She became saved. Wait a minute. I haven't ever killed anybody with an axe. Why would God save her? He needs to save me first. Right? That's what we think. Maybe I just think that and you guys are agreeing with me. Either way. Carla Faye Tucker, she placed saving faith in Christ. She was by all available evidence, she was transformed. In fact, she was so transformed that she asked the governor for a stay of execution. Not so that she could, you know, watch more Three's Company. I don't know, whatever she did in prison. But she wanted to stay on this earth longer so that she could share Christ with more people. Get more of those ladies on death row. It's Texas. There's a lot of people on death row, including women. She wanted to share that message of Christ with others. She wanted more time to do that. Now, am I up here saying, yay, axe murderers? No. But what I'm saying, that is the power that God has when it comes to salvation. He can save the unlikeliest people that we could ever think of. And guess what? They are just as loved as you are. God loves them just as much as he loves you and me. We don't, our, our minds can't process that. No, I'm better than them. I don't chop people up with axes. Yet God has the power to do that. So when we look at this, we look at the simplicity of Paul's mission, his marching orders from the Lord himself. Paul, here's what I want you to go and do. Paul stuck to that. By the way, this is in A.D. 59 or 60 when this is taking place. Paul being arrested uh, in chains in Caesarea Maritima. That's roughly 30 years after Christ's ascension. 30 years later, Paul is sticking to the mission. It's a very simple one. I want you to get out there. I will deliver you from the Jews and the Gentiles. I want you to take my word and spread it among especially the Gentiles. He's not saying you're going to have the easiest time. It's going to be a 30-year vacation. Nope. Beaten. Thrown in prison. Beaten again. Arrested. Beaten. Spit on. Run out of town. Almost. He was left for dead. That's not a cakewalk. 
but he was so committed to the mission, this divine mission of sharing Christ with others that he stuck to the script. And much like Paul, we do not do this in and of ourselves. So again, what is our mission? To go out and share Christ and to make disciples. That is what we are called to do. We don't do that in our own power and ability. Or if we do, we shouldn't. It is through the power of God's Holy Spirit that we can even do this. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit's power and his leading. We are called to stick to the mission at hand and not deviate from that. So again, I ask that question. Am I sticking to my mission as a Christian? Am I sticking to that? Are we, as Christians, living out our mission, spreading the gospel, sharing Christ with others, and discipling them? Are we doing that? Or should we be doing a better job? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word that went forth here this morning. We thank you for this stark reminder, and it's always good to have a reminder about the simplicity of the gospel itself, but also our role in that. Our role is to simply tell people about the work of Christ and what he has done in our lives. We are called to be a witness. We are not called to be biblical experts to, to break down scripture. And we are there to simply say, from my point of view, here's what the Lord has done. Father, I thank you for the people here today. Lord, I just ask that, that this message resonate with us, that we meditate on this, that we ask ourselves honestly, am I sticking to the mission? If the answer is no, Lord, help us in those areas. Help us be to become bolder, to step out of our comfort zone. We are all capable of doing this. Lord, we just ask for your help, your Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us where it is that you want us. And again, it is for your glory. Father, we say thank you for all of this. We ask that you help us this week as we share Christ with others. That we go out and make disciples and to continue to disciple them. Father, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask this. And amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast. We are located at 990 West Henry de Tonti Boulevard in Tontytown, Arkansas. You can check us out on the web at freedomfellowship.com or you can find us on social media by searching Freedom Fellowship NWA. We hope you have a great week and that you live out the mission of the church, which is to love God, love others, and serve both.